1: Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Today's guest, Julie Lewis, was diagnosed with HIV and thrust into the scary world of AIDS. Julie was told she had three to five years to live her diagnosis began a path of advocacy, faith, and positivity, despite her life's detour. Today, Julie works to make quality, affordable health care available to those in underserved communities. Through the 30-30 Project, Julie has raised funds to build 30 health facilities in nine different countries. Julie is the mother to Grammy Award-winning musician Ryan Lewis and is the author of the book, Still Positive, a Memoir. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me, Joan.
1: So, Julie, I want to start off by going back to 1990 and talking about your diagnosis. What was it that you were experiencing at the time when you were diagnosed with HIV?
0: Well, first of all, I was actually infected with HIV six and a half years before I was diagnosed, and I was experiencing nothing for most of that time. But then in 1989 uh, and maybe in 1988, I just started getting weird symptoms um, I was very, very fatigued, had night sweats, I had swollen glands, I was getting, I'm already thin just by nature, but I was getting thinner, um, I, you know, I would go, I went to several doctors, actually, and this was like, you know, I'm exhausted, I i have all these symptoms that I'm not sure why I have, and um now you have to know, in 1988, I um, Ryan was born, and he's my youngest. So I had three kids in four years, which you know, crazy woman. Mm-hmm. But um, the doctors would just look at me and they would say, "Oh, you have those three kids. You're, you know, you're exhausted because you know you're so busy." Because I was also working, and um, I just kind of knew in my gut that that wasn't it. You know, because I've always been a really active person. Mm-hmm. And I've always managed that well. It was, And so I started to think of things like chronic fatigue syndrome that doctors weren't actually recognizing very well in the late 80s as a real thing. Um, so when I got that call from my doctor saying that one of the people who had given blood for my blood transfusion had AIDS and I needed to go get a test, I just in my gut knew I was going to be positive because, you know, there hadn't been a, a good explanation for the symptoms I've had.
1: Well, and back then, you wouldn't have been someone they would have even tested for AIDS because you weren't considered to be of high risk. Kind of, that's true. Just if you would look at me and think,
0: you know, suburban mom of three kids, white woman, you know, whose yeah. husband's a minister. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but on my farm, you know, they have you fill out forms of like your past uh, medical history. And on all those forms. I put that I had a blood transfusion in 1984, which was a clear risk for HIV at that time. Right. But nobody would put that together because of what I look like and who I am. So, right. so in some ways, my, one of my questions is like, why, you know, why didn't
1: anyone see that as a risk, you know, because it was a clear risk. So once you were diagnosed, what was your treatment protocol?
0: Um, Well, when I was diagnosed, there was one drug that had just come out of drug trials, and that was AZT, and um, we, we, uh, people with HIV and AIDS had to take it every four hours, so I was given like a little pill container that had a timer on it, and every four hours it would beep, and then you would take your medicine, and it was very important to take it because um, you could actually develop drug resistance to the drug if you didn't take take it on time and have the right amount in your system all the time. And that made me super sick. I mean, like, AZT was our, you know, it was kind of this only hope drug, but also, oh my gosh, it, it just had so much side effects. Um, I was very ill.
1: Well, in addition to the side effects of the drug, how far did your disease progress? How sick did you become? I
0: finally got an actual AIDS diagnosis maybe two years in. Uh, So like in 1992, and and to explain what that means is um, if your T cell count went below 200 or if you developed an AIDS defining condition, then you at that point, um, they would say that you have AIDS, not just you were infected with HIV. And I ended up getting an AIDS defining condition. My T cells never went below 200. Um, and so a lot of why I was so sick was from the medication. Um, it wasn't necessarily from from the HIV. I mean, I was getting symptoms, but most of my debilitating symptoms were from the AZT, just from trying to manage that.
1: What was life like for you being diagnosed <laughs> with that?
0: Well, we... Um, <laughs> We, uh, my children were two, four, and six years old when I was diagnosed, and we, uh, the week I was diagnosed, moved across Washington State to a different city. Um, so I didn't really know very many people, which was actually to my advantage in right. some ways because it was a blessing. we didn't actually want to tell anyone. And um, yes, the fear was very real, um, and. I mean, just a couple stories from that. I mean, I went in with a strep throat, and the nurse asked me to swab my own throat because she didn't want to get that close to me. Um, I went in with appendicitis to the emergency room, and 12 hours later, after my appendix had ruptured, they finally found a surgeon who was even willing to operate on an HIV-positive person. Um, You know, I... (laughs) I went to the grade school where my daughter was in first grade to the HIV AIDS um, like curriculum explanation for parents because it was required to have HIV education from fifth grade on in Washington state. And it was all going great. Like there was a nurse and an administrator from the school who were explaining um, not just grade school, but the whole protocol of fifth grade through 12th grade, it's education. And I'm I'm a health teacher. You know, that's what I went to college to be. So I'm sitting here, I'm kind of interested in what they're going to teach kids. And then at the end, this guy stands up, this medical doctor, and he says, I'm a medical doctor. And I think that The National Institute of Health and the CDC are hiding things from us. I think there's lots of ways you can get this disease. Like he just went on and on. And I'm looking at him going, oh, my God, I'm never telling any of these parents ever Mm -hmm. that I have HIV because it was such a risk for uh, for my kids.
1: When you experienced that, how were you able to keep from letting the anger consume you? I mean, I can't even imagine facing that type of situation.
0: It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard, but also, you know, as a mom, I mean, I just wanted to protect my kids. And so um, I I surrounded myself with a small group of people who I could just vent with and, um, and who I knew would support me. And, um, I mean, at some point, you just kind of have to let the... Um, the people who are be, are ignorant or um, afraid, I mean, a lot of it was just fear. People were afraid. And um, I did my best to kind of secretly try to educate people because I'm a health teacher. So that kind of was natural for me. And then I guess the other thing I did was I just kind of dove into denial. I, it's like after a while waiting around to die and then just trying to manage this it's a lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's a lot for your system and I don't really I didn't really want my my kids if I died to remember me as an angry mom or a fearful mom or a sad mom so part of that was just accepting on some level that I had this you know kind of death sentence and then on another level just pretending like I didn't (laughs) (laughs) because I wanted I wanted to get joy out of every day and so I'm doing that denial getting joy and at the same time I'm writing my kids sort of letters to their adult self Mm -hmm. so they would know something about me so it was this weird place to live in.
1: So you were told by the doctors Julie you have a couple of years to live and and you just said you know you're sitting around waiting to die but here you are 30 plus years later. Why do you think you're still alive? Well that's that's the million-dollar question. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: and did well, your faith play a role in this as well?
0: This is a hard question to answer. I um, I think I was really lucky. I mean, just to be truthful, yeah. I have a brother who's also um, a 30-plus uh, HIV survivor. And so something in me thinks that our gene pool has, like, we have a strong immune system. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, if there's two people... <laughs> Who got infected in the 80s, who, you know, survived 30, almost 40 years. Yeah. Um, I have to think that we ha- we started out with pretty strong immune system.
1: Do you think I some of it, Julie, really was that your I'm mindset? Because 30... you almost made it sound like you didn't have time for this. You know, I have kids. I don't have time for this sickness. Do you think well, that didn't. played a
0: role? I mean, I didn't. And I, and I still don't. <laughs> yeah. And yet, and yet, I have to tell you, there were people just like me who had a strong faith, who who lived their life to the last second, who died. You know, mm-hmm. so it's hard for me to say, oh, I, you know, I'm a health teacher, I ate really healthy, I exercise. I mean, my, my brother, I love him to death, you know, he smoked for years and ate donuts for breakfast and he's still alive. So I, mm-hmm. I have a hard time like making a formula but I do believe, I do have a strong faith, and I have always believed that if you wake up and you're still here, you need to get out of bed and go do something positive. <laughs> and that, you know, I do think that doesn't hurt in your survival. But I also just know so many people who were like me who didn't make it. So there is a mm-hmm. luck factor in life, you know. You There's never a randomness know. to you never it. Know. Yeah. There's a randomness to it for sure.
1: And so what did that experience, facing your mortality, facing discrimination, facing all of those things, what did that teach you about life?
0: Well, I think what it taught me, um, especially as I, um, as you know, four, four years in, We told our six-year-old, and, you know, if you want your private information broadcast to the whole entire world, you just tell a six-year-old, (laughs) because they'll pretty much share it everywhere and anywhere. It's kind of comic relief, actually. Um, And at that point, being a health teacher and and coming from a family of educators, I just have a big belief in sharing stories and educating, so I joined the Speakers Bureau for 10 years, which is a lot of the middle part of, of my book. Um, and, um, I, I was taught so much by other people dealing with HIV, um, about differences. Like, we were all very different, the people on the Speakers Bureau, and yet we became very close. And I guess I learned a lot about just making snap judgments about people, and I learned a lot about, um, just humanity and how everyone deserves health care. Everyone deserves, you know, our, on our speakers bureau, the first question people would ask us when we were speaking, especially on a panel, was how were we infected? Because that could inform how they felt about us.
1: Yeah. You know, it yeah. was a
0: real, um, we called it the compassion gradient. And because like, if you're an innocent victim, like my friend's daughter, who who was born with HIV and died when she was seven. Oh my gosh, poor you. But if you were a gay man or an IV drug user, people had judgments. And I guess I just really learned a lot about, um, seeing people as, as all deserving of -hmm. compassion and care no matter what their life was like. And I think now in this current, um, sort of political, uh, We've been in in this country. I feel like that's one of the most current things about the book I just read (laughs) because we've gone full circle where people people are choosing to be kind of ugly at times and really judge people. And it's like, you know, that person deserves your care and your your listening ear. And, you know, they're a person who um, may be different from you, but maybe you have a lot to learn from that Mm -hmm. person. And from their differences. And, you know, there's 8 billion people in the world.
1: (laughs) We're all different, you know. And at some point, we're just going to have to choose to listen and care about each other. We're going to be in a really bad space. Well, and, you know, in the work that you're doing now, I've become a, a believer that when you look back over someone 's life when you when you when you 're looking in the rearview mirror and you can almost see everything you 've experienced in life that brings you to a certain point where you are looking at your life you have, you know you're a health teacher you went through this horrific experience of facing your mortality and then discrimination you 've learned compassion it's like everything brought you to the moment to create this organization that is doing so much good in the world and you have had the opportunity to see firsthand the shortcomings in the in the medical community and the way people are treated, as you just explained. And so, what is it that you're hoping to accomplish with Thirty Thirty? What are, What are your goals, and, and are there things we can do to help you?
0: Well, the Thirty Thirty project um, it was a specific. We set a specific goal, and I like doing that because I'm not 100 percent healthy. So in 2014, um, we launched the thirty thirty project with the goal to fund um, 30 the building of 30 healthcare facilities around the world in areas that lacked healthcare access. And it was a time in my son Ryan's life um, with uh, when he was uh, in the group Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. They were, um, you know, at the, at the height of their launching their group and um, receiving a few Grammys. So we had this bigger platform um, than than we had had in the past. And so anyway, and we worked, we're actually not our own organization. We're umbrella under the organization Construction for Change. And Construction for Change um, builds infrastructure for other organizations around the world working in areas of extreme poverty and need. And so... Our goal was to raise this money, find the organizations we wanted to build for, and then Construction for Change actually built the building, most of them. Um, so the 3030 30 project, uh, we had a five-year goal to raise our funds, which we succeeded at. Um, we had all the funds for the 30 facilities raised in 2019, which was a real blessing because then COVID hit and doing fundraising events kind of went away. Um, and then Construction for Change continued to build, and although they have some setbacks on timing during COVID, they're now um, constructing our last two of the 30 facilities, um, one in Kenya and one in India. So that project is really um, sort of sunsetting. Uh, it took 10 years. The The buildings will be done next year, so from 2014 to 2024. 20, um, but when I wrote the book, I wanted to continue supporting uh, these organizations and other organizations that work towards healthcare access and equity. And so we're uh, we opened the 3030 Project Legacy Fund, and all of the proceeds from our book are going towards um, healthcare access and equity. So we're still supporting. Really, what we do is we support great organizations. A lot of them are smaller nonprofits um, who are doing awesome work, uh, either by you know providing access to to um, infrastructure um, or just
1: uh, giving them money to support their good programs. So that's what I'm. That's what I'm doing. And so, Julie, what is your health like now? It's good. I mean, my
0: health is good. I still, you know, thirty-nine years of having HIV in your system and taking over sixty thousand pills to stay alive. It, you know, it does. <laughs> I'm not a hundred percent, but I'm lucky and I'm alive. And um, gosh, you know, it's weird to be in my sixties. I mean, who, who would have thought I have six grandkids? It's just, it's kind of crazy. Actually, every day I wake up and I'm like, wow. I, you know, I'm actually you know, have high blood pressure now and high cholesterol, like all the old people. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of hard to decide what's causing any of my problems these days. But, um, but I'm grateful. I'm grateful to, to be here and to be, you know, just enjoying, Mm -hmm. um, my, my grandkids and my kids and, you know, just, I don't know. I just feel really blessed everything at this point. It feels like icing on the cake in my life.
1: Um, yeah, and and so Julie, what would you say to someone? You know, we've been talking about HIV and, and AIDS, but but everything that you've experienced really applies to anything we're going through in life. But what would you say to someone who is facing a health challenge and feels like there's no hope?
0: That it's a uh, that's a hard place to be, and I really sympathize with that person. I think any kind of diagnosis like that is shocking, and um, it takes like. Like, it takes time to just even find your footing after you get a diagnosis like that. I would say, um, don't be a surprise, no matter what it is, that some people just can't handle it. Like, <laughs> and that's okay. I never faulted the people who just didn't know how to engage in such a, a hard situation. Um, some of my best friends, really. And then you have the rare people who just sort of show up and are in it with you for the long term and embrace those people. I would say find a community of people you can trust and lean on them. I was super self-sufficient, you know, straight-A student kind of person. And part of the hard part was just letting people help me. And that community, any you know, I had a few communities. I had all my friends with HIV who we could just be like super inappropriately pissed off around each other and that was awesome (laughs) you know with no apologies and have the rudest jokes about HIV and you know it was kind of nice it was a great outlet but then on the other side of that I had these bible study women who wanted to like support me and my friends other women friends with HIV and they would show up with the quintessential casseroles you know and also just take our kids and babysit for free and all this stuff, which was also awesome. So I'm just, I guess with people, it's like create space for yourself so that you can find that spiritual or that, you know, positive grounding that you're going to need. And then I don't know, it's like, give yourself a break. You will have good days and bad days. And it's okay. You're going to have days when you just don't get out of bed because you're so depressed. And it's like, allow yourself that and don't beat yourself up. It's like, it's it's a roller coaster. (laughs) Being sick like that, it's a roller coaster. It's everything from just managing, you know, horrible symptoms from medication, whether you're going through chemotherapy or, you know, a lot of medications have side effects. Um... And then just trying to figure out how to make the most of this time while also trying to be optimistic that maybe the doctors are wrong, you know, yeah. <laughs> maybe you have more time. And, and I know so many people who have beat the odds. It's like always give yourself that space to believe that maybe you'll be that 5% or that or whatever, you know, do things that you want to do. But also if something, this is one, this is my one thing that I tell a lot of people who are sick just because you have to give up something, you know, in your life, whether it's, you know, you were a runner or you love to do a certain activity and you can't do it while you're sick, never say it's forever. It might just be for now. Like you're giving it up for now, you know, and that always made me feel better. Um, When I felt like HIV had taken something from me, I would just say, well, that's just for now. Well,
1: and I have a friend who, who was recently diagnosed with leukemia. And rather than saying I have leukemia, because she said that makes her feel like there's an ownership. She says I was diagnosed with leukemia and it builds this wall between her and leukemia. Yes. I sometimes say I'm experiencing,
0: yeah. <laughs> I you know, I'm experiencing HIV or you're experiencing cancer right now. That doesn't right. mean it's forever,
1: you right. know. And that way you're not owning it. Right. Well, yeah. you're giving yourself space to experience something else <laughs> <Yeah>. better. <laughs> and once again, Julie's book is Still Positive, a memoir. Julie, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work?
0: Um, well, as far as the book goes, we have a website called Still Dispatch stillpositive.com. If you want to know more about the 3030 Project and what we've done there and where we built in um, to see pictures and all that, uh, it's 3030project.org. We're also, we push um, all of our, just our different things we're doing at the moment, whether it's, you know, a, a book launch event or I'm speaking at, all of that we have on Instagram and we're at at Still Positive book
1: on Instagram and follow us
0: there. And then you can get the book just pretty much anywhere um, that they sell books at this point.
1: Julie, thank yeah. you so much for spending this time with us. I'm so happy that you were here and that you were able to share some of your story and your insights. I know that it's going to change so many lives. So thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative.